and welcome to Greening the News, the podcast from the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment for everyone involved in sustainability and the environment. This month's podcast uh, comes as a direct request from uh, one of our members, and that's we're talking about rewilding with the author and commentator and the estate manager of Hokham Hall in Norfolk at the east of England, Jake Vines. Now, it was a bit of an experiment. We did go out to speak to Jake face-to-face because we thought the conversation might be a bit more free-flowing, and it is. It's a great uh, and really interesting conversation. But do bear with us because there is a a bit of external noise and some noises uh, that we just had to record at the same time as the conversation, so do bear with us. But I really do think that Jake has so much experience and it's so interesting in this field that you will really enjoy the conversation that's coming up. And uh, Jake, Jake, fine. Thanks so much. Um, this, in fact, was a popular choice. We did a focus group and lots of members said that they wanted to hear more about agriculture and its place in the world, not just to sustain people, but to sustain wildlife as well. Now, your book, Land Healer, is very, very much about that. But has this been a, a journey for you? Was it something you always wanted to do? Or did, did you come to this way of thinking? I didn't. So I left school at 16. I briefly thought that what I wanted to do was work in London and soon realised that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and then managed to secure a position on a rural estate um, at a relatively young age. So I was only sort of 19. Uh, and I, I just had a passion for the outdoor, outdoors, the passion for nature, the passion for farming. Um, but I haven't really, my whole career has, I haven't created a roadmap. I haven't got a strategy. It's just evolved. So working at Nepcastle uh, after leaving London, time in Australia, looking at some quite interesting agricultural practices, uh, then coming back uh, to NEP and then going to, on a uh, Welsh on the Welsh borders for a time. And the last 28 years I've been in Norfolk, starting off as a gamekeeper on a, a state in South Norfolk. Um, was there for 24 years, but within 10 years of being there, I was a state manager. Um, then taking on external roles within that. So I, the NFU's Environment Forum, uh, Norfolk FWAG, mm-hmm. and the National Parks Review. Yeah, where we met. Yeah. Exactly. So we, so that was the sort of evolution of my career. And then four years ago, Holcomb Estate rang me up and said, would you be interested in this position? Um, and actually, it's a large rural estate. It has the, it's the largest privately owned national nature reserve in the country uh, with a million visitors. Uh, there's a huge farming operation. And Holcomb already, under, already understood that my, some of my external stuff and some of my connections in Westminster and Whitehall and also with some of the ENGOs, so National Trust, Wildlife Trust, Natural England. So... Um, I get to do all the sexy stuff, all the interesting stuff at a time which is at a time which is just so crucial from a humanity's perspective, from the environment's perspective and how and the challenges of climate change. Now interesting. I mean you, you talk about what well, NEP. So NEP, uh, for those who don't don't know, the NEP estate is the kind of poster child 
for, I've talked to, to Charlie Burroughs before, who, who owns the estate. And I mean, you know this far better than I, but they were really struggling to make a going business as a arable farm, I think, wasn't it? So they just walked away. They just, they just kind of locked the door and let, just let nature get on with it. And it is, it's like, a, it's like the Serengeti now, isn't it? So when I was at NEP, it was that struggling arable. They also had dairy. Yeah. They also had horticulture. Uh, basically, Charlie had inherited this block of land um, and was trying to make a go of it and was mm. looking at en- every an- avenue to ensure that he had a business that was sustainable and profitable. Like many other businesses in the UK at the time, and possibly in Europe and possibly globally, that you know the drive for production, production, with little thought for the natural world and climate change because no one really talked about it then. Mm. So Charlie took the decision having visited Franz Vura's project called the Osfundersplazen, which is this rewilding concept where we can return land back to uh, self-managing ecosystems. Issues with Osfundersplazen uh, soon became apparent because uh, the, the vast areas you require Um, for nature to balance itself out like the Serengeti or Yellowstone National Park. That's quite challenging to do in any part of Europe and specifically in England. So the net model is trying to return the farm to nature using and managing their large herbivores, so the ponies and the deer and the cattle and the pigs, that are the drivers for biodiversity rather than ones impacting it. And NEP is a, is, a, is a role model for others to undertake large-scale uh, ecological restoration uh, in a slightly managed way, but actually it's taking your foot right off the gas. So do you think, though, I mean, yeah, there's been endless conversations about the, in the kind of farmerati about whether this is, you know, this is a model for the future. Do you think that you can, you know, we could all be a NEP, you could have NEP all over the country? And, and if that's the case, do, can we feed ourselves with that model as well? So we can't because NEP, NEP produces bucket loads of biodiversity, uh, engages hundreds of thousands of people, um, but produces something like 25 kilos of protein per hectare. That's not going to feed 8 billion people by the end of the century. So, but we need to make space for nature. We need clean water. We need healthy soils. We need um, we need access. Um, and from my perspective, the low hanging fruit is agriculture. Forty percent of habitable land is in agriculture. Agriculture um, has a carbon footprint of something like twenty five percent globally of the yeah. global uh, CO two emissions. So, agriculture is the low-hanging fruit. In the UK, 70% of land is in agriculture. We can have these examples of NEP, and we should have. The nature reserve here has has, has similar aspects of NEP. It's, uh, it's 54 years old since its designation. It has, a, but it's still, it's still a working farm. Mm. But we're producing significantly more protein. And if I look at the principles of the Lawton Report, and how we make space for nature. The natural world is so complex and we're just starting to understand it and I don't think we'll ever truly understand it, but it operates in ways we can't think about. So you can't, you know, when people think of wildlife corridors, 
Wildlife corridors for one species is a linear line. Wildlife corridor for another species are stepping stones. Mm. And Lawton spells that all out. So, so the natural world requires heterogeneity. If we apply heterogeneity in our farming systems and we look at nature-based solutions and what that means to everyone, and this, you know, the buzzword of regenerative agriculture and what that means and how we can implement those to have sustainable food systems that improve our soils to make them more resilient for climate change, uh, uh, clean our water um, while still pr- producing food with a less of a requirement for fossil fuels, diesel and artificial nitrogen. I think that's really possible. And. Even if we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis where there will be people who will be thinking, you know, there was in the papers just this week, um, families who are really having to cut back on food in order to make sure that the kids can be fed and that sort of thing. Um, There's no getting away from the fact that you're going to have to pay more for some or all of your food under a model that supports nature, aren't you? So... A topic that I'm having with several people at the moment. So as a child of the 70s, we saw food inflation. We saw cost of living increase. We saw um, fuel prices very high. So I'm slightly familiar with it. But I think so the request for increase in food prices doesn't necessarily mean that the, the consumer picks up the tab because the consumer is a wide-ranging demographic of those living on a very low income to those that can afford uh, rare breed, pasture-fed, organic. Um, So we have to cater for all of society, and I think it's the responsibility of the food system and those that profit from the production, the manufacturing, the, the selling of food globally those are the ones that need to pick up the price to allow the the, the workforce. Fundamentally, it's our labour force that we need to look, look after. And if I go back to the Industrial Revolution only happened because agriculture became more efficient and effective at producing, the, feeding the labour force. The great quote of a, an army uh, fights on its stomach. So we need to apply that. So we need people to have healthy, nutritious Uh, affordable food available to them uh, and we can't be taking huge profits to ensure that happens. Now you're I'm just about to come on to that because you are fighting a lot of vested interests aren't you there because um, I mean if you look at a a, a kind of map of the food system the only people not actually getting any benefit are consumers and farmers everybody else even the people who supply farmers the pesticide and fertiliser manufacturer they're getting plant protection products plant protection products and, and fertilisers, inputs, whatever, um, are all getting their cut, you know, their return on investment apart from farmers. So you've got you're, what you're talking about is basically sucking some of those profits out of the middle to give to either end. Okay, so the farmer narrative depends which farmer you are. Mm. So we've had a lot of uh, egg producers saying they're not being paid sufficient uh, price for their product. That's because they've seen a huge hike in energy cost and a huge hike in feed cost. You speak to a cereal farmer this year, 
they've had a very, very successful year. We look at the. You, it always look, goes a bit quiet, doesn't it? If they're doing well, you, never, you can't say anything because you're from the NFU, but, but I can. But, but we, uh, we we look at the price of lamb. I know that it's 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 cooled off a bit, but the the values of lamb and beef have been the last two years. The post-Brexit concern for the livestock community yeah. didn't happen. Oh, yeah, I remember that with lamb. Yeah. Lamb, produ- that lamb, lamb went up in price. Sheep farmers were all concerned that they'd lose all their markets. So, so it's, EU. you know, it, the, because the food production system is so wide and varied, yes, there will be, a, 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 and the complexities of how that works and how a farmer engages with a... Uh, a supermarket for simplicity's sake and signs a contract and that's a two three year contract on to deliver to deliver a certain quantity at a certain quality and then halfway through that contract it's uh, cost of uh, feed and rockets interestingly enough with what we've heard in the press in the last few weeks regarding eggs specifically, we're now seeing the supermarkets in the last few hours saying they're looking to um, sort out some of the issues with farmers not getting a sufficient price for their eggs. So in an ideal world then, uh, in a world that, you know, that land healing world, a land healer world, um, what does a farm look like and who, who are they selling to? So Henderson's Farming Ladder, a wonderful book uh, by a Cotswold farmer uh, in the early 40s. Um, and his farm was a mixed mixed farm because when milk was high, corn was low. Yeah, yeah. So what farmers, I think, the 21st century farmer will do, it will have a range of products that it provides society. An old-fashioned no, mixed no, farm? No, 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 no. That doesn't have to be the case. So it can be, It can be. Um, I think they're commodities, depending on who you are. So if I look at, let's look at Net Castle. Net Castle is a farm. Mm-hmm. In the wonderful book, Wilding, they describe it as a farm. and But their primary product is biodiversity. Yeah. They need to be rewarded for that. The uh, their next product is people, mm. and their second Terrorism. product is is uh, uh, is um is is food mm. at a very low levels. But actually, so every farmer will have a range of different commodities. Whether it's carbon sequestration, when we finally work out what that is, whether it's biodiversity, whether it's clean water, whether it's access, whether it's food, and each farm has to identify which products it's best at producing and then the follow-on products thereafter. So they have a range of income streams and not solely just, I'm a combinable crops farm and that's my only income. Already we've got a nervousness within the combinable crop sector that commodities is going, the price of wheat is going down because there's no demand because there's a global downturn. So suddenly they had a very good year and they're already nervous because the cost of their inputs aren't going down. Mm. So we're going to see this from the egg producers having a difficult time that the combinable crops guys that have to make significant investments, they might see a downturn. But if they've got, if they're being paid for biodiversity net gain, if they're being uh, locked into a conservation covenant, if they are working with others to uh, clean water, the local uh, environment agency or the local um, water company they have a range of different income streams yes there's still agricultural support and that happens in many different forms globally 
um, and I think it still has a place, but that's to start to allow these other income streams come in thereafter. And I know that DEFRA and its green finance department have been looking and working on this very closely. We talk a lot in IEMA about um, trying to increase the number of people from marginalised communities in uh, environment and sustainability because it's quite white, it's quite middle class. Um, and we always use these figures that we did with Policy Exchange a few years ago. It's the second least, uh, it's the second least diverse sector apart from farming. <laughs> and it's almost like, phew, we're not the worst. Um, but does it matter? Does it matter if we don't have a, a, a diverse farming population? Does it matter if it's difficult for young people of colour to get into agriculture? I live on the North Norfolk coast. It's white middle class. Mm. It is what it is. You know, we know in the Parks Review the difficulty of having uh, diverse communities living very close to amazing places that they feel yeah. excluded from. If I look at uh, when I go to London or when I go to Birmingham and I look at society in general, um, a great uh, quote from a friend of mine was, uh, the British public is everyone that you meet in a motorway service station. Yeah. We all, sit in our own, we all sit in our own little bubbles thinking yeah. this is society. The reality is there's such a wide range of people out there. And all of our businesses and all of our institutions have to reflect all of society. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that we have a wide range of voices from a wide range of individuals to ensure that we f- have a product and we produce a product uh, that is fit for everyone to feel acceptable. So I think all the difficulty is how you make that happen. Mm. Yeah, and I, I mean, have you any thoughts about how you do? Because you're right, it's not easy. If it was easy, then everybody would have done it. I don't think, certainly with the work we do, there's no lo- lack of desire to reflect modern society. It's just I, I, it I, right. I think I think it evolves and some sectors will be more challenging than others. And if you look at the service in hospitality, hospitality was very white not that long ago, and it's now quite diverse. So farming is, because it's generational, will be probably the last one out of the blocks. But I think there is no reason, if I look at young people, my daughter went to Oxford Brooks and I went to her graduation, and the diversity there was phenomenal. Yeah. So actually, they're all coming through. It's just this lag between, you know, the the young people and the range of education that, are, that is available to them, and then when they start looking at the marketplace, yeah, and it and it and it's how uh, it's how institutions like yours actually start to engage with those young people and make them feel this is an this is something a career that I could go down. This is something that attracts me. Um, yeah, so that those are you, specifically your challenges. I mean, it's a fair comment. It's a fair comment. Um, so, are, are you thinking about another book? I'm just looking at your um, your screens of these amazing wildlife. Presumably, you're taken on the estate. Are you thinking of another book after Land Healer? Um, you're not the first person to ask this. <laughs> well, that's good. That's a good sign, presumably. I, <laughs> if it all went a bit silent, then you might stop worrying. <laughs> I think... I mm, think, Land Healer. Mm. <laughs> I think there's Land Healer, the specifics of Land Healer was trying to capture a moment yeah. and try to make it as topical as possible. And I think there's no reason why there isn't another book. But it's ensure, it's, you know... At the moment, we've got lots of talk, lots of waffle, lots of papers, lots of tests and trials, lots of pilots. Yeah. 
I've got a little, not enough action. Yeah. And I think if there's going to be a sequel or a version two or another story to tell, it's that story of how we implemented it. So Land Healer talks about the possibilities. Let's talk and give examples and let's speak to, you know, possibly it's speaking to those that have made that made that move. So I don't know. So I think there's, you know, not not in not coming out in 2023 anyway. <laughs> Oh, dear. I was going to say, oh, you heard it here first, but unfortunately <laughs> I can't. Um, Jake, it's been an absolute delight, as always, having a chat to you. I miss, I have to say, I do miss our Buffer Review chats because they're always so interesting. You know, just get five incredibly interesting people for and me and the table. Um, we always ask our guests uh, at the end, are you an optimist or pessimist for the future, bearing in mind all the challenges we face? Um, I am an eternal optimist. You have to be because... Um, I'd had a conversation with Sir Ian Boyd, yeah. who uh, was the ex defra a chief scientist, and he was deeply depressing. So the so the <laughs> they are um, who's he? Oh, uh, John Beddington as well. If you go to one of his seminars, but, but he gave me this wonderful stat. <laughs> so uh, using Scotland as an example, each Scottish individual extracts sixteen tons of natural resources annually. For us to get ourselves out of this climate biodiversity muddle, we need to be only extracting eight tonnes. So that is a a monumental mountain to climb. And I think we can do it. We just need to get people together, get people communicating, get people engaged. Um, I think the next generation, you know, we are the generation to sort of strike the match and then pass on that um, candle to the next generation, who are, I think are really up for it. They are. They are. I, it's it's a constant delight, actually, to talk to our graduates and our students. They are so full of ideas and passion and enthusiasm. So. And then we have this wonderful thing called technology. Yeah. So, you know, if I look at my lifetime and how technology... I remember seeing James Bond films where they were stroking screens. Like, <laughs> no way. And now everyone's stroking screens every day. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, brilliant, Jake. Thanks so much for talking to Pleasure. Me. Pleasure. See you soon. So after we talked to Jake, uh, Tom Pashby, our digital journalist, and I went outside to get a bit of that bracing Norfolk air and to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the news this month. So, Tom, we've uh, as we've uh, taken the advantage of the lovely countryside after talking to, to Jake, um, we thought we'd come and talk about uh, what's happening in the news. Mm. Obviously, both cops, weirdly, you have two different cops processes, one for climate change and one for biodiversity. Mm. But what's what's shaking out, do you reckon? Well, so we've just gone through COP27, which is in Sharm el-Sheikh. I think that the big headline item out of that was that loss and damage got on the agenda, which is the first time it's managed to get on the formal negotiating agenda, um, which is a, a major win for developing countries, countries at the forefront of climate impacts who have least resources to actually adapt and to make themselves more resilient in the face of the climate emergency. Yeah, um, I mean, we talked to Thomas, didn't we, um, one of our members, who said 
we may want well, you know, the, the developing countries may well walk away if they mm. didn't get that this time. Yeah, absolutely. But it should be fair enough. And there was a challenge, which was that it was held in Egypt, which is a petroleum exporting country. So there was lots of concerns about the impact of powerful fossil fuel interests in, yeah. in the country at COP27. But I think that there were some major wins in terms of climate finance and loss and damage. And then obviously straight into COP15, pretty much, which is being held in Montreal in Canada. Um, I'm not sure what's on the agenda for this. I know that it's always seen as less important by the NGO sector mm. and international politics compared to the climate conferences. Yeah, but without biodiversity, there's no climate change. Absolutely. Without climate change, there's no biodiversity. Yeah. So I suppose you know, a lot of people have said, well, why, don't we, why mm. aren't we not putting mm. these together as a single and process? P- people in the past even months, if not years, have been doing putting more effort into saying climate emergency and biodiversity yeah. crisis because they are very much linked. So there are definitely moves to kind of put those crises on parity with each other, but there is still a major challenge to get get them both linked up. I should just say to listeners that in the great law of broadcasting, there was literally not a single car went past, <laughs> and now every car in Norfolk appears to be driving yeah. this road. But there we go, just so you wonder why it sounds like we're standing on the M4. Yes. <laughs> um, so let's move on to domestic stuff. Um, and there's a lot to talk about here. There's onshore wind, there's a national grid, um, and there's something else we were going to talk about. I can't remember what it was now. Uh, sustainable aviation. Sustainable aviation. Thank you very much. So, Shall we start with onshore wind? Yeah. So uh, UK politics has been very turbulent over the past few months. We've had um, three governments in the space of three months, I suppose. So I think uh, Liz Truss decided that she wanted to overturn the effective ban on onshore wind development, on new onshore wind developments, because uh, government basically was calling in um, all new onshore wind developments into the Secretary of State so the Secretary of State could decide on whether or not it would go ahead. The normal process is for it to go to local consultation and for then the local authority and local people to decide on whether they wanted it. Um, it seemed like Liz Truss was keen to restart onshore wind development and then uh, Rishi Sunak, the new Prime Minister, we seen whether he was going to continue to overturn the ban um, and then at the weekend Grant Shapps, can't remember what his portfolio is, Bayes, yeah, business secretary. Um, Energy, industry and skills. Industrial strategy. Industrial strategy, thank you. Yes. And there was some confusion over the weekend. So we're recording this on... When? Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. (laughs) On Sunday, Grant Shapps made some statements which caused some confusion. And he has since said that they are not overturning the... They are not not overturning the ban not not overturning yes. the ban oh perfectly so thank god the We're... ban is being overturned yes not, is the current overturned. attitude from government it seems okay interesting yeah so which is good yes but got to in a kind of slightly roundabout way perhaps yes yeah, yeah. slightly confusing <laughs> so first sustainable aviation flight there was there, there were two weren't there one RF yeah and one commercial is yeah that right? so there was a successful test of an engine which was powered by hydrogen. And that was um, EasyJet and Rolls-Royce at an RAF facility. So I believe that was ground-based, but it was a successful hydrogen-powered engine test. And then there was also an RAF um, sustainable aviation fuel-powered flight, which was domestic, so quite short range, but still successful, which is a good move because RAF has such a massive estate. Um, So hopefully they will be able to roll out the infrastructure that they could use to power lots of more military flights. Yeah, And of course, we did talk to Richard Nugy a few months ago about the sustainability, the armed forces sustainability plan. 
And, of course, some money in your pocket, perhaps, if you're a part of a national, mm. national grid pilot. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about that. So National Grid are facing a massive energy crunch this winter, which we're in right now. Lots of parts of the energy system are kind of under review. Um, high intensity producers like um, factories and manufacturing, but also households are a massive part of that. So um, National Grid has run some pilots where they ask households to reduce their electricity usage and they pay for that reduction. So there's been a couple of trials where people have been paid to reduce their energy usage. And I think that that has had a big impact on the overall energy system. But then I think it was um, yesterday afternoon, it looked like National Grid might ask the, the whole of, I don't know whether it's England or Wales or the whole of the UK to reduce their energy usage and to pay everyone who reduced their energy oh, usage. Oh, right. So not they just the trial. Yes. They, there was... It looked like they might have chosen to do it, but in the end they didn't. So that was the first kind of test of the system, which, you know, they didn't turn on eventually, but that so, was the first opportunity so they not, had. So it's not for an onshore wind and didn't turn on in the pilot wind. Yeah, my yeah. Cool. Uh, thank goodness for bringing some clarity to the situation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks very much as yeah, always. That's all right. <laughs> So that's it from us. Thanks to Jake and thanks to Tom and thanks to you for listening. Please do let us know what you think, what more you'd like to hear from the podcast and how we can improve it for you and make it more interesting and more relevant for your daily and your professional life. Do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and other social media. Uh, That's it from us for now and for this year. Looking forward to 2023 and some new podcast editions and looking forward to engaging with our fantastic IEMA audience. Speak to you soon and a Merry Christmas and season's greetings. Bye.